The KSTE Farm Hour is sponsored in part by Allion Herbicide from Bayer. Residual control that goes the distance. Cleaner, longer, Allion. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. Sacramento County may be the site of an ambitious water recycling project. It would supply area farmers with treated irrigation water. We have the details. A major California wholesale fruit tree grower is getting out of the business. We'll tell you why. There's been another blow to the Delta Tunnels plan, this time from San Joaquin Valley row crop farmers. They don't want to be forced to foot their portion of the bill for that $17 billion project. Egg producers in 13 states are asking the U.S. Supreme Court to block a California law that prohibits the import of -of out-of-state eggs coming from hens who don't have the room to stretch out in their cages. Also, more and more farms, ranches, and rural homeowners are adding large generators to their property in order to thwart electrical outages. But are you operating those generators safely? We have that, crop reports, and more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. The California Water Commission held hearings recently about a proposed project that would provide tertiary-treated water for ag uses in Sacramento County. The proposal's authors are the Sacramento Regional County Sanitation District, also known as Regional San. They also say that this project would reduce groundwater pumping as well as cause groundwater tables to rise in the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta region. Terry Mitchell is the Legislative and Regulatory Affairs Manager for Regional SAN, and she explained to the CWC how this project would work. This particular project can provide 50,000 acre feet per year of recycled water to southern Sacramento County, irrigating up to 16,000 acres of agricultural and habitat conservation lands. We'll be providing a pipeline that will run 14 miles, a transmission pipeline, down to the southern Sacramento area and provide distribution lines as well. We will be producing tertiary treated recycled water by 2023. Once completed, this project can provide a drought-proof supply of water and be able to provide it for beneficial uses in the region. Sacramento County Farm Bureau Executive Director Bill Bird says if you get farmers more water here, crop production in Sacramento County will increase. Sacramento County farmers and ranchers smashed crop production records last year, if you didn't know, by churning out $507 million worth of wine grapes, milk, pears, nursery crops, and other agricultural commodities. Our members broke that record because they had access to clean and reliable irrigation water supplies, and any project that adds to it is something that we're going to support. It provides substantial agricultural, ecological, and regional water supply benefits at a low cost, and if our farmers don't have to pump it out of the ground, they won't. The Sacramento Regional County Sanitation District is attempting to obtain funding for the project through the Water Storage Investment Program that's contained in Proposition 1, the water bond that California voters approved back in 2014. It started in 2005, 12 years ago, when a disease of citrus called greening was first discovered in Florida. That year, Florida produced 242 million boxes of oranges on 530,000 acres of groves. By 2012, production was down to 147 million boxes. 2015-16 season, down to 81.7. 16-17 season, only 68.7. Meanwhile, though, growers began to have some limited success in managing greening, and for this season, they thought maybe they would finally be able to reverse the downward trend, maybe grow a few more oranges than last season, but they didn't reckon on this. Hurricane Irma. It was a 
unfortunate path that Irma took and uh, created a lot of havoc on food, agriculture all through the state. This is a widespread disaster. Blowing immature fruit right off the trees, and so now prospects for the Florida orange crop again are down. After surveying over 1,900 Florida groves, USDA has cut its production forecast yet again. It's down to 46 million boxes. Compared to last season, we're down 33%. From two seasons ago, we're down 44%. According to Mark Hudson with USDA's statistics office in Florida. And to put this into historical context, this is the lowest since this song was a hit. Would you like to swing on a star? 1945. Citrus greening, plus the effects of Hurricane Irma causing a large percentage of the fruit that was present on the trees early on to drop off and be lost. Hudson told us as far as that drop rate... Historically, it used to be like in the teens for drop, but then with uh, greening went up almost 30% sometimes, so now we're up to 60 the economics are, are difficult for producers down there. USDA's chief economist, Rob Johansson, he says it costs money for producers to try to manage citrus greening and produce a crop, and so... They're spending a lot of money on management. They're also facing declining uh, yields, which make it harder to, to meet that bottom line number. Or, as Florida Congressman Tom Rooney put it the other day... They have been devastated by this storm. They're at the end of their rope. The Agriculture Department has been working to find ways to help producers. Many of them did not have the level, though, of crop insurance that would have covered them for a disaster as big as Hurricane Irma. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. More than a dozen states banded together recently to ask the United States Supreme Court to block a California law that requires any eggs sold here to come from hens that have the space to stretch out in their cages. According to the Associated Press, the lawsuit was filed directly to the high court. Those other states allege that California's law has cost consumers nationwide up to $350 million annually because of higher egg prices since that law took effect in 2015. The lawsuit argues that California's requirements violate the U.S. Constitution's Interstate Commerce Clause and are preempted by federal law. California produces about 5 billion eggs and imports an additional 4 billion eggs from other states. 30% of those out-of-state eggs came from Iowa, the nation's top egg producer. About 13% of California's egg imports come from Missouri, the second-highest percentage cited in the lawsuit. You may recall California voters approved a ballot initiative back in 2008 that requires that hens in cages spend most of their day in spaces that are large enough that they can lie down, stand up, turn around, and fully extend their limbs. The measure gave farmers until 2015 to comply. After California egg farmers raised concerns that they would be put at a competitive disadvantage with those elsewhere, state legislators in 2010 expanded the law to bar the sale of eggs from any hens that weren't raised in compliance with California standards that require at least 116 square inches of floor space per chicken. The industry standard, 67 square inches. Ever wonder why USDA's Census of Agriculture is conducted once every five years? It's mandated by Congress. It'd be done every five years. That was Barbara Rader, director of the National Agricultural Statistics Service's Census and Survey Division. It's a massive undertaking. So any massive undertaking requires a lot of resources. So every five years is about right in the sense that, you know, what we can do in terms of getting it done. USDA is mailing out nearly three million questionnaires to farmers and ranchers all around the country. 2017 will allow us to see what changes the agricultural sector has undergone, as well as allow 
allow other USDA agencies to see if their programs they put in place, let's say five years ago, they can measure the effectiveness of those programs or see that they have to adapt them or even develop new programs. The census is one way for ag producers to make sure their voices are heard. Completed applications are due by February 5th, 2018. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Here's this week's California Crop Report. Growers are continuing to plant oats, triticale, and winter forage. Fields that were planted earlier in the season had signs of good growth. Alfalfa hay production finished up. Bales are being stored. Seed alfalfa was mowed for the winter. Cotton modules and rolls are still being picked up and sent to the gins. Silage corn harvest is completed. Barley planting is also complete. The harvest season of grapes for juice, raisins, and wine is finished up. Some grape vineyards were irrigated, treated for weed control, and fumigated in preparation for replanting. Pomegranate harvest has finished up. Persimmon harvest is complete. Pruning continues in some stone fruit orchards. Some older, poorly producing orchards and vineyards are being removed and prepared for replanting. Olive pruning and orchard cleaning is ongoing. Almond and pistachio harvests are complete. Walnut harvest is nearing its end. Almond orchards were cleaned for mummies. Older orchards are being pushed out and the ground is prepped for pre-plant fumigations. Processing of stored almonds is ongoing. Broccoli, carrots, and lettuce all have excellent stands for the winter season. Cultivation of organic garlic is ongoing. Fresh onion fields and tomato beds are being prepared for planting. Organic cantaloupe harvest is over. Organic broccoli, celery, and spinach fields are growing nicely. Head, leaf, and romaine lettuce for the fall season grew nicely, with many fields starting to be harvested. Non-irrigated and foothill rangeland forage quality is improving, with some north and central state locations reporting fair to poor conditions. Earlier rains and warmer weather stimulated germination, and foothill range and non-irrigated fields are showing some green. Dairy workers are cleaning out corrals in preparation for winter. Supplemental feeding of cattle is ongoing. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. There's another blow to Governor Brown's plan to build the Delta Tunnels Project, also known as California Water Fix. This time, it's the row crop growers of San Joaquin Valley who are objecting. The Sacramento Bee reports that this group of farmers went to court, insisting they shouldn't be forced to help foot the $17.1 billion price tag. The Valley farmers are located mainly in Kern and Kings County. In general, farmers who grow high-value tree crops such as almonds and pistachios are more inclined to support the WaterFix project. But row crop farmers whose revenues aren't as high are the ones who are resisting this time. A total of 18 water districts filed objections in Sacramento Superior Court where the state is pursuing a lawsuit to confirm that it has the authority to issue the water fix bonds. Meanwhile, the State Water Resources Control Board is pressing ahead with marathon water rights hearings required to get the tunnels started, even though the project faces uncertainty. To build the tunnels, the state and federal government need the water board's permission to divert water from the Sacramento Sacramento River at a spot near Cortland, that's where the tunnels would begin. The tunnels would carry a portion of the river's flow approximately 40 miles to the giant pumping stations near Tracy. 
Last year, wholesale turkey prices were averaging about $1.17 a pound. As 2017 has played out, it seems, so have turkey demand and prices. In fact, prices didn't even do their usual spike before Thanksgiving. It's the Thanksgiving bounce that didn't come to dinner this year. <laughs> USDA Outlook Board Chairman Seth Meyer, prices have declined. In November, USDA was forecasting wholesale prices this year to average about $1.06 or $1.07, but now they've taken it down to about 95 and a half cents a pound on weak demand. And we kind of think that weakness in demand carries into 2018, so we trimmed prices in 2018. From 99 cents a pound to a bit over 96. Meanwhile, USDA livestock analyst Shail Shagam says turkey producers have been trying to reduce production starting this past fall. Egg sets for both the beginning of September and October, they have been down slightly from a year ago. Poults placed in flocks in September, they were down about a half a percent. But the birds are weighing more, so the USDA is still forecasting turkey production next year to increase from this year's 6 billion pounds, but only by about a half a percent. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Two of California's North Coast representatives, Senator Mike McGuire and Assemblyman Jim Wood, both Healdsburg-based Democrats, are calling on the state of California to cap commercial cannabis farms to one acre per person, saying it'll protect small farmers from being outcompeted by larger companies. However, there are some in the industry saying reinstating the cap so close to the planned New Year's Day rollout of the state's marijuana market would be inappropriate timing, as some farms have already been permitted at the local level to grow more than one acre. According to a report in the Eureka Times Standard, the passage of recreational marijuana laws through Proposition 64 back in November, as well as the legislature combining the medical and recreational rules through Senate Bill 94 earlier this year, that one-acre cultivation limit was left out. The California Department of Food and Agriculture then released its emergency cannabis cultivation rules, which also did not include the one-acre cap. However, an environmental review of the rules released a few days earlier had included that cap. The Department of Food and Agriculture said it left out the cap from the final rules after careful consideration, including input from stakeholders. However, local jurisdictions may impose that limitation on their own if it meets the needs of their constituents. Just how important is commerce-related infrastructure when it comes to the economies of rural America or to our nation as a whole? The infrastructure that supports rural commerce and allows us to participate in global markets is wonderful, but it's also somewhat fragile, and it's an advantage we need to protect. University of Tennessee transportation expert Mark Burton says, yes, infrastructure can apply to roads, bridges, waterways as essential pieces of transport of goods to market. But as Special Advisor to Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue, Janine Miller points out, the ability of e-commerce for rural America is just as important. There's a study, there were 70,000 jobs in rural America that were supported every year by internet connectivity and $100 billion of e-commerce. I'm Rod Bain, and connecting rural infrastructure with our nation's economic opportunities is the subject of this edition of Agriculture USA. Many in the public and private sectors understand the importance of rebuilding, even developing new infrastructure in rural America to spur needed economic growth and development in those parts of the country. Take, for instance, roads and bridges, which, according to Robbie Boone of the Farm Credit Council, are located in the rural parts of our country. 74% of our bridges and 73% of our roads are in rural areas. 
Of course, roads and bridges are just part of a vast transportation network that includes rail, inland waterways, and ports connected together to ship commodities and products to markets here in the U.S. and around the world. As University of Tennessee transportation expert Mark Burton notes, In terms of trade, rural commerce is critical to the United States and our participation in the global economy. One example of this, in 2015, U.S. waterways and the systems and corridors of barges, locks, and dams that allow transport of goods inland to ocean and gulf ports supported an estimated $128 billion, will it be, dollars in agricultural exports. And in terms of rail, 40% of all rail traffic is tied one way or another to global commerce. And of that 40%, 25% is tied to trade with Canada and Mexico. With a majority of that tonnage involving rural-based commodities, including those from the farm and forest. Mark Burton says in terms of both U.S. total sales and exports. Combined, agriculture and mining are a huge economic influence in the United States. But it's not just transporting goods to market. Nick Tyndall of the Association of Equipment Manufacturers says with most of the nation's farm equipment manufacturing plants located in rural areas, that infrastructure is what brings raw product in and moves finished product out. We are the world's leader in agricultural equipment manufacturing and there are 320,000 Americans employed in the ag equipment industry. This combined rural economic activity has led several coalitions in recent years to push for needed improvements to, and in some cases rebuilding of, necessary rural transportation infrastructure. Robbie Boone of the Farm Credit Council says there is no quick or magical fix to solve these problems. He believes instead that this will take public-private partnerships and financing, along with a long-term perspective to address these challenges. This is going to take everyone coming to the table, and government obviously is part of the equation, but it's also private investment, and it could be debt, it could be equity, venture capital. It is what makes the environment more favorable in terms of getting money to and folks willing to invest in this part of the world, if you will. And that approach also includes a form of infrastructure that advocates say is just as important to growing the rural and the nation's economy. Rural broadband, wireless, and other forms of internet connectivity. Janine Miller is the Senior Advisor on Rural Infrastructure to Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue. And she says a 2015 Hudson Institute study reveals 70,000 jobs and $100 billion in e-commerce occurred in rural America. And we know it's grown every year since then. Over the last year over year, it's 16 or 17 percent growth. What grows that fast anymore? While much of that economic growth is related to the development of hardline Internet service to rural areas in recent years, Nick Tyndall points out that improving wireless connectivity in rural America will also spur economic expansion, especially within farm fields themselves, where modern machinery with several onboard computers need that connection to transmit and receive data critical to precision agricultural practices, real-time business decisions, and a producer's bottom line. Far too often, people don't think that corn fields and soybean fields need a wireless signal. The cornfield, a soybean field with $10 million worth of product, it needs covered. One of many examples of the intricate connection between rural infrastructure and rural economies, now and in the future. This has been Agriculture USA. 
I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Celebrating 50 years, the American Farm Bureau Foundation for Agriculture, among other things, is creating educational resources to address ag literacy. Foundation Board of Directors member Hillary Maracle says the foundation works to build bonds of trust between consumers and farmers and ranchers. I really just want to help connect people to farming, make farming real, help overcome those misconceptions that are out there for agriculture. People are interested in their food right now, so if we can connect with them and help them understand why and how we do the things we do, it's a great opportunity to tell our story. This year, the foundation gave away 50 teacher resource grants, created a free ag careers curriculum, and updated the Farm and Food Facts book to provide accurate information to consumers about agriculture. Our kids and our adults, they're three to four generations removed from the farm, so we have to teach them about things that we see as everyday activities. We also want to help ensure that it's accurate ag information that's getting to consumers and our youth because we know some of the information out there is not always accurate. Giving to the AFBF Foundation is easy and tax deductible. You can make a donation online or through events at the 2018 AFBF Annual Convention and Idea Ag Trade Show next month. To give to the foundation, jump online, go to agfoundation.org. There's a donate button there. You can just put in whatever amount you're able to give. By giving to the foundation, you're really helping create more educational resources. And if we each give a little, it adds up and we can really make a difference. Michael Clements, Washington. The end of an era is coming. After more than 73 years, the Central Valley-based L.E. Cook Company Bear Root Nursery Division will be ceasing operations after the 2018 spring shipping season. Well, how did this all come about? Ron Ludikins, the president, and David Cox, the CEO of Ellie Cook, explained on their Facebook page that there was the 2008 recession, a five-year drought, a shrinking independent nursery market, California's mandatory increases in hourly wages, overtime rules, and regulations, growing too many varied products, and the problem of convincing customers that the 80 to 100 percent mulch mixes that they're getting from their municipality's waste recycling is mostly deadly to trees that are canned in it. Although they're closing down their bare root nursery division, Ellie Cook will maintain distribution of its max tapeners as well as the Miracle Garden tie. And they will continue on as a separate business with a small nursery for grafted liner production for the nursery trade. Bookings have been solid and nurseries may have interest in picking up extra trees this season in anticipation of shortages created for the near future. Five, four, three, two, one. Today. Speaker of the House Paul Ryan and 11-year-old Montanan Ridley Brandmeier pushed the button to light up the Capitol Christmas tree. This marked the culmination of the 79-foot-high Engelman Spruce's journey to Washington, D.C. from Montana. Look, this tree has literally grown in Montana for decades, and during brutal fire seasons, braving harsh winters, reaching the height of almost 80 feet. It probably provided shelter for bald eagles and shade for elk. That was the state's senior senator, John Tester, who spoke at the tree lighting ceremony. This tree is more than a symbol of the natural resources of the treasure state. It is our shared history, intertwined with our outdoor heritage and our Montana values. 
It is an example of what happens when this nation works together toward a common goal. It is a symbol of unity this Christmas season. The tree traveled overland for more than 3,000 miles and made stops in more than 30 communities along the way. I'm Stephanie Ho, and in this edition of Agriculture USA, we'll take a look at the partnership between the Capitol and the U.S. Forest Service, which every year for decades has provided a tree from a national forest to become the Christmas tree that is better known as the People's Tree. U.S. Forest Service Chief Tony Took says his agency is responsible for providing the tree that graces the grounds of the U.S. Capitol during the holidays. Every year the Capitol Christmas tree comes from a different state and a different national forest. This opportunity to provide the tree rotates among the nine different Forest Service regions. This year's tree came from the northern region, specifically Montana's Kootenai National Forest, where Chris Savage is supervisor. We took the tree out of an old historic guard station that was up the upper yak called Upper Ford, uh, and that site was only about eight miles from the Canadian border. Savage traveled cross-country with the tree through many remote communities. We stopped in front of a children's hospital. We stopped in front of two one-room schoolhouses where kids got out and were just in awe to see the tree and, and made enough time for them to sign the banner and just to be part of it, and those were just completely unscheduled stops. The tree and more than 70 companion trees that accompanied it also came with personal greetings from Montana's residents. The other thing that we were really responsible for was working with everyone in the state of Montana to help us create ornaments. We had started that over 10 months ago. We had school kids, senior citizens, community organizations, and many other civic groups that our goal was looking at about 8,500 ornaments. We easily surpassed that by creating over 13,000 ornaments. And that wasn't even the final number. As the team was driving along to get here, we had people uh, handing us bags and totes of ornaments that they still wanted to make sure that made it here to the nation's capital to be part of, uh, at least, you know, to see one of the ornaments hanging on one of the trees. The group of kids took old CDs and they used plastic silverware for wings and feet and they used bottle cap lids for the eyes and beaks and they made like owls with them. Sandy Mason is the Capitol Christmas Tree Project Coordinator for the Kootenai National Forest. The VFW group there cut out buffalo out of a real hard, durable plastic and then people could come in and decorate those buffalo. Mason says cutting down the trees was a feat in itself. When they cut it, they lifted it with two cranes. They had a crane hook it at the top and a crane at the bottom, so it never hit the ground. On the road, she said one of the biggest logistical challenges in bringing the tree more than 3,000 miles from Montana to Washington, D.C., was making sure it always had enough water. And they've got a 80-gallon um, water bladder that's hooked to the end of that tree that sits, in my mind, it looks like a chair. So we keep it filled with water. It gets filled about every night. When the tree arrived in front of the Capitol at the end of November, one of the bystanders included Mark Serrata from Troy, Montana. My old hometown is right near where they cut the tree down, and a guy I went to high school with, his son, cut the tree down. So did you follow the tree on purpose? No, just a coincidence. I'd never been to Washington, D.C. before. In Montana, everyone took video of the tree leaving Montana, and so it was just a coincidence. We got here just in time to see him hoist it. Pretty cool. This year's tree is up, but the story is not quite over yet. Chief Took, where will the 2018 Capitol Christmas tree come from? Next year, the tree will come from the Pacific Northwest region, specifically from the Willamette National Forest in Oregon. For more information about that tree, you'll have to tune in next year. 
For Agriculture USA, this is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Sacramento Valley rice grower Peter Rystrom talks about the attraction in the rice fields this time of year. So we're out in the rice field right now looking for birds. Every fall and winter we get a huge uh, migration of waterfowl coming from as far away as Alaska and western Canada. Ducks, geese, uh, cranes, it's beautiful. Uh, one of the things I'm most proud of as a rice farmer in California is the focus on conservation and repurposing farmland uh, to be wetland and to be a place of rest and a home uh, for these animals as they pass through. It's wintertime here in the valley, and we are a very attractive place for migrating waterfowl. And part of the reason they love to come to the Central Valley are all the rice fields that are flooded. Sacramento Valley rice farms not only produce foods, but they also provide vital environmental benefits. There are something like 75,000 acres of managed wetlands providing food and other habitat requirements for something like 230 wildlife species. To tell us more about it and where you can go do a little birding yourself, it's Jim Morris from the California Rice Commission. And Jim, uh, this is a great time for uh, bird watching, isn't it? It's fantastic, Fred, and this is a great year, too. We're all blessed to have a significant amount of rainfall, so there is a lot of habitat for our migrants. It's kind of like an interstate highway system, but in the air, we have millions of birds heading north to south right now. So throughout the winter, it's a great opportunity to see massive amounts of birds in our region. And some fairly spectacular birds, including something like, what, a dozen species of raptors? Yes. In fact, when you head north of Sacramento on Highway 99 or Interstate 5, keep an eye out for those farm fields because interspersed will be red-tailed hawks, other types of hawks, uh, also owls, and also uh, one of my favorites, bald eagles. Fantastic to see bald eagles in our valley. All right, we'll talk a little bit about the refuges where you can see these birds uh, in a little bit. But let's talk, uh, Jim, a little bit about the role that California's rice farmers do in encouraging these birds. It's a fantastic situation, Fred, because not only are the rice farmers in the Sacramento Valley growing virtually all of America's sushi rice, billions of pounds of it every year, which helps our economy and rural communities, but they really are a foundation for our environment, offering up this wildlife habitat that comes simply from the rice fields. The rice is harvested in the fall, and then it works out perfectly. There's some straw left over with a lot of food out there that times perfectly with the migration. In fact, nearly 60% of the winter diet for millions of ducks and geese coming through our area comes directly from the rice fields. There's been a lot of changes in California. We've lost well over 90% of our wetlands in the state, and the rice fields in large part are now acting as those surrogate wetlands for our environment. We've talked about this in the past, but I think it bears repeating that one of the reasons the rice fields are flooded this time of year, it really cuts down on the amount of burning that's necessary, doesn't it? That's been a real big change in the rice industry in Northern California. Uh, generations ago, the rice was largely burned for disease control. There is a little bit of that that occurs, but primarily this is the preferred method. A uh, few inches of water go into the rice fields, which help the straw decompose. And again, it times out perfectly with this amazing, epic migration of wildlife. 
All right. So for those people who want to do a little bird watching, let's uh, point out some nice refuges in the Sacramento Valley where you can find uh, some of these migrating waterfowl. There are some outstanding ones. And the great thing is, is you can have an auto tour where you're driving right along and you have the wildlife right in front of you. Fantastic photo opportunities. So along Highway 99, there's the Sutter Refuge. Um, I would uh, advise that folks look into that before they attend that one. There's sometimes some flooding issues that occur. Uh, Gray Lodge is a little bit farther up in Gridley off of Highway 99. That one is fantastic. And on the I-5 side, there's the Calusa National Wildlife Refuge. And one of my favorites in Willows is the Sacramento National Wildlife Refuge, which is just an amazing feast for the eyes. Why is that your favorite? Well, you're almost assured to see a bald eagle, and just the amount of wildlife there, uh, it's pretty common to see otters, uh, pheasants are also there, some coyote from time to time, and the snow geese pack in by the thousands. If you time it right, the sights and sounds of that, you'll never forget it. And these refuges are, are helped quite a bit by California's rice farmers, aren't they? It's a great cooperative arrangement between the farmers and the wildlife refuges. It all works together to provide that critical wildlife habitat. And I should also say that the rice farmers are working hand-in-hand with many conservation organizations like Audubon, Point Blue, Ducks Unlimited, and the Nature Conservancy. All right. All, all sorts of birds, 15 types of reptiles, and nearly all of the food for millions of these migrating ducks and geese in the Sacramento Valley comes from those rice fields and those refuges during the winter. Winter season. Jim, if people want more information about this, is there a good website to visit? Absolutely. CalRice.org is a comprehensive way that you can get more information on this. And we also have hundreds of blogs, photos, videos, and recipes, too. People can go to CalRice.org and learn more about uh, the water-efficient nature of rice. It takes about the same amount of water as oranges or broccoli to get a serving of rice. All right, calrice.org is the website. And uh, Jim, thanks for talking with us and happy birding. Thank you, Fred. Generators are critical during severe weather events when the power can go out, as well as bringing power to remote job sites, as well as disaster recovery and emergencies. And here in California, there's another new twist wildfires and a lot of the utility companies in the state are now turning off the electricity to avoid any sort of disaster in heavy wind events in case of broken wires causing fires that's a precaution that will be taken in rural california and perhaps in the cities of california in the years ahead when it comes to wildfires but what do you know about generators How safely are you operating that generator? Let's find out. We're talking with Chris Kaiser. He's the president of the Outdoor Power Equipment Institute. They're an international trade association representing small engine, utility vehicle, and outdoor power equipment manufacturers and suppliers. And Chris, anybody who lives in rural California or rural America, for that matter, is probably familiar with generators because historically, when the electricity goes out, it's rural America that gets affected first. So some people probably have experience with generators, but the question is, are they doing the right thing? Well, Fred, absolutely they are, and I appreciate uh, talking to you today. Um, They're critically important, especially where you've got power outages. You described the rural areas. I live in the middle of a major, major city. Um, and I have both a portable and a standby. They're just critically important, and power is not as certain as we'd like it to be. Um, and so if you want to maintain your lifestyle or safety, they're, they're just critically important. You just have to be smart about how you use them. Having 
owned a farm. I know for a fact you can live a lot longer without electricity than you can without water. So out on the farm, one of the first uses put to generators is to keep the pump going to bring that groundwater up to the well and to the livestock or and the house as well. But uh, you just can't go out and hook it up to your well. You have to take some precautions. And I think that's where a lot of people fall th- short when it comes to installing generators is not taking precautions when dealing with a farm or a house that's already been uh, wired for electricity because you've got power going back up the lines. Well, you've said it. Um, and so it's critically important to know, you know how the generator works, how you're set up. And the, the key, Fred, is to, is to do it ahead of time, right? So I, I know that's oftentimes challenging, but you know, you've got to have fuel for a generator. If power goes out, it might go out not just to your home, but to your community. So your retailer might not be able to pump gasoline. You have to go bear in mind, what are you going to need in the event of a power outage? So you have to pre-plan. So the key is, as you described, You've got to know your machine, right? So it's critically important. It may sound trite, but you've got to read your owner's manual. You've got to know the nuances of your machine. You've got to be ready when it's needed. That's the key. They're, they're terrific at delivering electricity if you're preset for it. Again, the, the principle for us, every time we talk to folks like you, we want to remind people is their engines, right? The power is out. The engine's going to provide the electricity, but that engine's going to produce carbon monoxide. You can't run them in the house. You cannot run them in the garage. You can't run them in the breezeway. You've got to get them away from open doors and windows. And again, here again, knowing your machine, your manufacturer will have in the owner's manuals very specific, you know, criteria relative to placement. That's key to running a generator safely. It'll provide you power. It'll keep the house warm or cool. It'll keep your food safe in a refrigerator. And you described it'll bring water up to the surface, but you've got to do it safely. Well, let's go back and talk a little bit about that fuel, because a lot of people keep generators on hand, but they forget about the fuel that may already be in the generator or not have enough spare fuel to run that generator. And early on, I I discovered uh, quite quickly that it's very important that if you have a generator and you use it once and the electricity comes back on, you need to get that fuel out of the generator, either run it until it runs out of fuel or put in some sort of stabilizer because that fuel, if it sits for months inside a generator, can go bad, and then you won't have the generator when you need it. Fred, you hit it on the head, um, and that's critically important. It's probably issue number two behind your location. Uh, fuel today has at least 10% ethanol, um, and a lot of areas you're seeing E15. Now, that's only legal for a subset of the automobile fleet, so only cars can use E15. The challenge with ethanol and gasoline is not so much an issue for an automobile, but anything that's used seasonally, recreation, uh, emergency, where fuel is fit, it's critically important to have no ethanol gas or gasoline that's been treated for that ethanol so it doesn't stale, so it will fire. What happens oftentimes if gasoline is sitting for extended periods of time, it'll absorb water. Um, and then it phase separates, and the few, and the engine won't run, or you'll pull water into the engine. So it's critically important, as you described, is that you treat your fuel. You know the, the timeline by which, you know, when you've added your stabilizer, how long that fuel is. And when it, you're past time, put that fuel in the car or your pickup truck uh, and get new fuel. And again, when you're done using your generator, run it dry or stabilize it. Again, that's key, knowing the fuel you're using. 
And one of the keys to a generator as well is they're, they're usually equipped with a shutoff valve so you can run the engine until it's out of fuel. And then maybe if you want to keep gas in that tank of the generator, treat it with a stabilizer. That's exactly right. You mentioned that the generators should not be in exposed areas, but you'd need to keep it dry if there's a storm going on. So how do you solve that issue? Well, it's one of the challenging ones. And it's, it's again, it's one of the things you want to think about in advance of the storm is where can you run it? Now, we have seen in areas of and it's a, it's a sad story to say, but again, it's a testament to the generators, their utility and their importance in an emergency situation. People steal them. And so if you so people will run them closer to the house or on the porch or in the garage because they don't want them stolen. So if everybody's out of power and one house has power, um, you can quickly uh, identify that location. And so we've seen in Houston, South Florida, Puerto Rico, where there have been extended power outages over time, is people who are running generators, oftentimes they're subject to theft. So we want to be careful. Again, you want to think about this. And so to your point, Fred, identify a place that you believe uh, will shield it, right, as you've described, from, from rain, uh, or create a space for it. But it's imperative that you not run it in enclosed space, in the house, in the garage, in the breezeway, or adjacent to open windows and doors. It's just you cannot say it enough is that these things are wonderful. They're providing electricity, life-saving electricity, but they're dangerous because of the carbon monoxide if they're run indoors. Most manufacturers of generators recommend plugging appliances directly into the generator, but in the case of, uh, say, a freezer, you may have to run an extension cord in order to to keep your uh, frozen food uh, okay. So what are the best extension cords to use with a generator? Those rated for outdoor use. If your machine's running outdoors and you're plugging it outdoors and you're going to run it inside, you're going to want a certified weather-rated extension cord something that can go outside. And not only that, but uh, I know a lot of people who use extension cords for years and years, and maybe they were originally three-prong plugs, but that ground has broken off, and they think they're okay with just two, but that's not the case, is it? Fred, you're exactly right. Again, the key here is safety, to operate at safety. Again, you're producing electricity. You may be in inclement weather. Is use the latest, and if you've got, uh, as you've described, if if your cord is, Uh, broken or you've lost your ground, invest in a new one. It's imperative that you use them safely. Um, And so use the latest. If you're, if it's frayed or bent, this is not where you want to thrift, you know, so buy good current product. One of the points that the OPEI points out for operating a generator safely is don't use the generator to backfeed the power into your home electrical system. Explain what you mean by that and, and why it's dangerous. You're bypassing the circuit breakers, right? So I'm sort of a plain English guy, and that's what you're doing. Um, and you're beginning to defeat the safety devices that are inherent in both the house and the machine. There you go. Chris Kaiser is president of the Outdoor Power Equipment Institute. Generator safety is what we've been talking about. Chris, thanks for a few minutes of your time today. My pleasure, Fred. Thank you for talking. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at kste.com.